Welcome to another episode of Crash Chords Autographs. I, of course, am Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon, and some business up front before we move on to this week's episode. I, of course, want to thank my patrons, Rob, Robert, MJ, and Case. If you, too, would like to get a thank you up front in an episode of Crash Chords Autographs, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash stormageddon, and I believe it's the $5 level or higher that gets you a thank you right here. Um, I can't do this without you guys, so I appreciate anybody who gives. Uh, of course, if you can't do the Patreon, I totally get that. Uh, a like, subscribe, share, uh, review and rating on iTunes or Facebook, all of that stuff helps. So anything that you can do to boost this show and share it with the, your loved ones would be greatly appreciated. On to this week's episode. It is the return of Victor Devon. I'm so excited to have Victor back. Um, a lot has happened since the last time he was on the show. He started his own podcast. He's planning a second one. Um, I've since worked with him quite a bit. When he was last on the show, we hadn't really worked together much, and now we've become quite good friends. And so it was really great to have him back on the show and chat a bit about all of those awesome things. So without further delay, please enjoy myself and Victor Devon. You know, just, I'm not their first return, though, right? No, yeah. I've had repeat guests before. All right. Um, I only bring back the ones I like. Oh, well. You uh, never, you don't just start off with the ones you like? Right, exactly. Um, uh, well, I mean, the, truth be told, there are interviews I've done with complete strangers, so I don't that's, know if I'm going to like true. them. And there are some and there are some that have been, I've never had a, really a bad experience, I don't think. I've had some uh, odd interviews, but I've never really had any, like, people I didn't get on with or that mm-hmm. I wasn't able to talk to, really. You were uh, communications major? I forget. Yes. Yeah. Good memory. <laughs> I feel like we talked about that at some we point. We either talked about it or it just makes sense yeah. for what you do. So, um, I mean, I was a communications major for, like, a semester and a half that was of the college that I went to. Right. So, Until but, you majored in the theater. Well, no, I never majored uh, I, in the theater. That's right. The acting I, stuff came later. I, um... But you took classes in acting, right? Didn't you? Yes, but as an adult. Oh, okay. Got I it. took acting classes. Um, I had met um, a woman named Kathleen, uh, who works in Clifton, New Jersey, uh, is formerly of uh, soap opera success in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of actors who don't necessarily want to be, you know, on the grind, uh, they she went to teaching. Uh, she went to teaching and she runs her own uh, conservatory and studio. In central New Jersey, in uh, North New Jersey, and I wanted to like there. Basically, when I made my my co-director split in 2012, it was a very um, formative time, and I. What's always so strange is the fact that I feel like I've been in a formative time most of my life. Right, and so. It was one of those times, though, where I was like, I just have to fucking do it. And if I don't fucking do it, then I'm never going to do it. And I I wanted to take some classes. And I don't this was probably 13, 14 or so, 2013, 2014. Okay. And I took um, intro, which basically you learn to forget about being self-conscious uh, if you can't 
by the end of that, you shouldn't be an actor. Right, of course. And I always approached burlesque as acting and as production, show, design, and all that. But my individual work, I always try to be as much of a storyteller as possible, whether I'm portraying like a snapshot in Victor, you know, Apocrypha, <laughs> or I'm trying to portray a specific character that now I've started to do more. Right. Um, but for a while, White Elephant was really known for these conventions in Central Jersey where we did a whole, you know, long form Yeah, I remember show. You, you telling me that you did yeah. mostly like these kind of narrative things. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we did sort of, I mean, they're sort of almost always the same structure. Right. You, you learn that in literature and in adaptations of literature, a lot of times people go the Romeo and Juliet route, the Alice in Wonderland route, which is basically the same as the Wizard of Oz route, which is um, which is basically central character wanders around and and meets all the fabulous beasts, basically. Right. Um, and sometimes those beasts are human. <laughs> so, and I loved writing that, and I loved constructing it, and. But I, I felt I didn't have a lot of the, I don't know, the stage chutzpah, as it were. And so I, I knew Kathleen. I was comfortable with Kathleen. I had never been in one of her shows because she also directs community theater productions. And I thought I'd give it a go uh, to the extent where eventually I did audition for her oh, wow. for a play. Uh, which is one of the few plays that I've, actually the only play that I've done as an adult that wasn't under the name Victor Devon. That I actually used. Did you use your model name? name? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it just it just wasn't Victor. It was, right. Yeah. It was you being you. Yeah. That that More part or less. of you. More yeah. or less. But I learned a lot from that, and it was it was Agatha Christie. Right. And Agatha Christie, while I've always been a fan of the work, um, I mean, of the frankly bits that I've known, I know like the Murder on the Orient Express, and the and then there were none, and some of the more obvious ones, Miss Marple, but. A lot of it is very dated, and a lot of it is um, a lot of it is somewhat problematic uh, by today's standards. Mm-hmm. And I mean, some of it is problematic by that by those standards then too. By um, but there's a certain charm and wit, and I love a good murder mystery. My favorite movie, as we talked about on Screen Snark, is Clue. It's Clue. We talked about it the last time you were on this show too. Probably yeah. it comes up a lot. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Uh, I actually had. To you had told that. me. Actually, that reminds me. It's like yeah. tangent. Uh, when you were on last time, two oh. years ago, you were just about to go see the musical, the live musical, which turned out to not be the musical. It turned oh. out to be just the live action stage adaptation. So oh. it was a straight play. Oh wow. Yeah, with Sally Struthers as Mrs. Peter. How was it? Um, I was very entertained. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's it all was, you can ask for. It, it, you really. Um, <laughs> the most thrilling moment, me and uh, Gretchen Violetta, who is my best friend and was in uh, the first ever White Elephant show, and I did Rocky Horror with, uh, we, we got tickets together, we sat together. Uh, the very first stream, we didn't expect much reference to the film because we didn't know what the rights issues were and then we realized in the program like oh no it actually is based on the same screenplay all right and the music which is john morris which is one of my favorite film scores uh the clue score and the opening theme that um which I you can get on CD. There, there's a limited edition copy of uh, the soundtrack that I recommend. Um, 
I had th- that was like the most thrilling moment. Right when, when that it played and yeah, yeah, and then everything else was just pastiche and fun. It was very dinner theatery. There okay. was no insight. There was no. It was. It was, was there still comedy? It was funny. Okay. It That's was good. funny, but most of it was ripped directly from the script. And anything that wasn't directly from the script stuck out really, really badly. Interesting. Uh, so they changed a few things for reasons that I'm unclear on. Like they no longer made Professor Plum uh, a doctor. They made uh, a doctor of medicine, like he was, or a psychiatrist. Uh, right. They made him, I believe, into an actor, if I'm remembering correctly. Huh. Um, Strange. Yeah, just little bits. Uh, and of course, whenever they had to do like the iconic flames on the side of my face yeah, yeah, yeah. or um, any of the Wadsworth lines. It's yeah. the cook. Like all of those, you know, those had to be in it. In it. Right. Uh, I thought men like you were usually called a fruit. Those things like that <laughs> had to be in it. And the actors did the very best they could to at not being. Right. Madeline I mean, that, that also that original cast is so flawless. flawless. Like Absolutely there's no flawless. way to duplicate yeah. that. The only thing, the only comments that you can say in my estimation that you can say about the, uh, about the quality of the film and the negative is that some things were lost in the editing. Mm. You can tell that some scenes were stitched together in a different way than they were probably written, right. or they were filmed in such a way where not all of the endings work out. But other than that, and most of it's forgivable. Yeah, and most of it you have to be, you have you to really scrutinize. Have to know. Yeah, you yeah. Have, you like have to know. it's very easy if you're just a passing fan. If you're just watching it, you would you never probably know. you you may at one point go, oh wait a second, if you're disseminating it after this, right? Which invariably, if you're watching it with me, you are. Yeah, of course. But uh, yeah, no, the clue has been one of those things of uh, it's one of the earlier obsessions I've I've mentioned. Uh, get your shot glasses ready. Yeah. I've mentioned Rocky Horror before, and I've mentioned Madonna. Yeah. But technically, Clue came before all of those, because I saw it on TV first. Yeah, it was funny. I was going through old Halloween photos, and apparently one... I think it was a Halloween, but one one year at the way station for some costume event, I went as Professor Plum, because I didn't have any costumes, so I wore my long purple Joker coat, my purple okay. gloves, and then I carried a pipe and wore a green vest. Is your, vel- is your Joker velveteen... Is it a Joker jacket? No, it's kind this? of just cloth. Right. But yeah, it was it was a slapdash kind of thrown together sure. thing. But I was wearing all purple. I was like, oh, I'll be Professor Plum. Yeah. Um. Uh. So we're we're well into the podcast at this point. Sure. If, for those who don't know who you are, you of course are Victor Devon. Um, Not it, so, of course, but yes. <laughs> it's funny talking to you now. Like, so listening back to the last episode because I did that because I just don't want to repeat content. Sure. Of course. Um. It's interesting to listen to myself engaging it with you as someone who doesn't really know you, and now we've become quite good friends. Right, that's actually very, that's actually quite true. And it was just it's very interesting to listen to me kind of tip like not tiptoe, but be you know very um, open and casual and try and yeah. be very welcoming and like it's just now I could probably talk to you for four hours. You're without very stopping. accommodating. You're very accommodating well, as thank a, you as an interviewer. But um, since since that last uh, visit to autographs, you started your own podcast I that have. I've been on an annoying amount of times at this point. Some people might say, perhaps um, you're actually in almost every episode because I use my uh, ad, yeah, ads. several of my ads yeah. because I'm the only person who sends I you ads told, for podcasts. I said I, I would host them, and then people Nobody. don't. But I I'm so. on it. Um, I'll have a new one for you for Fun and Games with Matt and Jeff soon, okay. which is the one I do with uh, Jeff Moonen, aka the uh, close brother of Dick Move. Yes. Um, but uh, striking similarity. Striking, striking similarity. 
But yeah, you started your own podcast. I was guest number nine, if I recall correctly. Very uh, good. <laughs> um, so what inspired you to start a podcast? Was it, was it just that no one was really interviewing nightlife folks? It's not necessarily that no one was, because obviously at I that was, point yeah. you were... Um, but your your scope is a little broader. Right. I'm doing mostly any kind of entertainer right. or a, hobbyist. We have a few. I mean, uh, as of the date of this recording, I have released 52 full-length episodes. Right. Uh, with some bonuses. And there was a time there where I was doing some featurettes that I, I had a lot of interest in. The wrangling in them is a lot is a lot uh, more difficult than I had anticipated. Mm-hmm. And the editing is a lot more difficult. If I think editing one portion having seven or eight with all different sound levels and all it's just a lot i'm not opposed to it but it's just something i have to prepare for right and i hadn't um (laughs) but no what it really was is i it's frankly it's one of those things that i do a lot i had a an interview recently with jed ryan for his blog oh that's right and he asked me so what else do you do and what do you see like and i'm like Frankly, I I do a lot of burlesque and then I talk a lot about it. Um, and I know that's I know that I know that to be true of of other people who are in the acting adjacent world. If you're not acting on stage or talking about it, right? Uh, about the gig you almost got, the gig you should have gotten, the people who who are working that you don't particularly care for, the actors that you look up to, all of that. And burlesque is no different. Right. Um, for as often as we we are a, a snarky bunch, we also are a fairly thoughtful bunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and indeed, most of our snark comes from a place of either, I think, uh, a, a want for better regulation or, or respect for our what we do. Right. Either in terms of what we're paid or in terms of our value in society or our value among our peers or the festival. I mean, if it seems as, as frivolous as the festival that we didn't get into. Right. Because we are of the of the mindset more often than not that we deserve it. And burlesque is a, a strange beast because it is very personal, but it's also entertainment. It's it's meant to it's meant to resonate with someone in the audience. And it can be very masturbatory. It can be very self-indulgent. But most of my experience with White Elephant Burlesque and our origins is frankly us connecting with an audience that had not seen burlesque before and had certainly not seen burlesque with the bodies that it had mm-hmm. or the accessible skill level that we had. And I don't say that in so much as that we were bad or that we were amateurish. We actually, we were quite good. And I don't think we could have gotten the shows that we had if we weren't quite good. But we were homegrown. We were self-taught. And there was something that you could look at and say, maybe I could do that too. And while that has not always been the case, um, I think I said to Jed that every body is a burlesque body, but not every mind is a burlesque mind. Mm. Not everyone can do this. It is a lot of work. It's um, very trying on the psyche and, 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 and your friendships. Whether it's people that all you do is talk about burlesque and they're tired of hearing about it, or people interpersonal relationships this person doesn't get along with that person this person used to date that person this person 
isn't thought of as being right for this show and you're friends with that co-producer so why can't you put in a good word like all of that right why can't i put all of my friends in my show um i thought there was some sort of no there's not there's no agreement um and then also the disappointment of people not coming to your show or the disappointment of things not going the way that you want to so it's a lot it's it is it is a really hard job and it's also a job and then you take in all the other factors like dealing with everybody all the personalities and all of the venue owners and all of the promotion and and that can be quite a a struggle but white elephant since we predated a lot of the we had live journal but we we predated excuse me a lot of the instant social media live journal you still had to read Right. And you still had to know to go there. There weren't notifications. You couldn't follow people in the same way. You could scroll, but it was a little longer format. So it was a little, it wasn't as, you know, instant, instantaneous. And with Twitter or Facebook or screenshots, frankly, um, it's just a slightly different animal. So I thought, why not, you know, relaying back to your earlier question. (laughs) I knew we'd get there. I mean, yeah. Uh, it's all a rich tapestry. Um, that I I talk about it so much, and I talk a lot about it with people. And I'm an archivist. I like keeping track of things. Why not? You know, do it. And I've had the opportunity of talking to people that I know very well, but I've gotten an opportunity to know differently. Um, like I've had really great conversations with Vanka before, but I can't say that um, I had ever spoken to her about her sex work, and I can't say I'd ever spoken to her about her opinions on things like Fosta Sesta. Um, I was, I'm really tight with Lillian uh, Bustle uh, of Jersey City. We, we talk all the time. In fact, we are, I think we are go-tos when it comes to, did you see this? What right. happened? Uh, or what do you think? Or, oh, yawn, or things like that. <laughs> oh, the things, oh my goodness. Um, and we're never cruel. I will, I will like to point that out, but it's important to have a sounding board that Absolutely. also will hold you accountable. Right. Because there are times where we go like, can we just get a sanity check? Yeah. I see this. What am I seeing? And fortunately, we have the friendship where the other can say, oh, no, that's exactly what's happening. Or I don't know. Maybe you should ask or something like that. Right. Um, and in terms of I, I struggle because um, because it is called Weberlesque and it does technically extend into the night re- nightlife realm. I've had drag performers on there. I have had people who do not. I've had a DJ, yes. for example. I've had producers that are not literally burlesque performers. Right. Um, but I'm, you know, I I love that name and I want to be as consistent as possible. So I well, also Weberlesque. you've talked about before that white elephant burlesque and white elephant is a brand as well as well as i pay taxes on it right (laughs) um and i think it comes from that well what's funny is you know you've been doing the you're in your second season of the podcast now and you've been doing it for quite a while um but also since we last spoke i've become a producer i'm not just uh uh had you not been at that point if i had been it hadn't been very much because uh we're only coming up on magical girl burlesque's third birthday this year okay so I would have, I think I would have worked with you once already, or I'd been very close to. Right. Well, we had talked a bunch at Newton Nerd Lusk Fest because that's when we had we had talked about mm-hmm. it. Um, and I think you at that point you hadn't booked me for White Elephant for DJing yet. 
But shortly after that, you had booked me for DJing, I believe. It wasn't long after we had first spoken. I think that summer was no, the first. No, yeah. No, no I yeah. agree with you. No meaning yes. <laughs> no meaning yes. Um, I believe so because... I mean, I, I can speak with people that and work with people that I don't know very well, but it is always better for me to have some sense of who they are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's not necessarily that I keep people at arm's length, but it is that I welcome the opportunity to get to know people. Yeah. Which is funny for someone who doesn't necessarily engage that socially. Uh, all of the people that I know are mostly in the nightlife scene. Or... That's become the case for me. Like, I still have friends outside of it, but most of them are either long distance that I play video games with online or they're people who got married and moved away and so I only see a couple times a year. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the people that I see regularly at this point are nightlife or nightlife adjacent mm-hmm. or friends who mm-hmm. aren't in nightlife who will come to shows in nightlife. Right, in which case, you know, they're that's nightlife. How, they're nightlife. Yeah, yeah. Um, it would be interesting. I haven't, I haven't done it yet. I haven't spoken to someone who on the podcast speaks to uh speaks to the entire uh, the strictly perform uh audience member right perspective um which i i would be open to um it'd be interesting and there are definitely regulars of it's funny though all of the regular attendees i can think the think of have now at some point transitioned they've to dabbled. they've either dabbled or become performers right. like my first thought would have been nate Ryder, who has performed now yeah, only yeah, once but he has, he has. You know, or, um, or... Well, it's an, it's an, it's an, if you're doing it correctly, in my estimation, if you're doing, if you're doing burlesque, at least a version of burlesque correctly, because I do believe that there are multiple facets and some burlesque are less invitational than others and that doesn't make them wrong. Right. Uh, in fact, what it does is it sort of lets you know, again, that it is a skill set and that not everyone can do it. Uh, so if you see a show and you don't feel invited, that doesn't necessarily mean it was a bad show, but I think club shows specifically shows that are done in clubs or in bars or on smaller stages, if they are not invitational to perform to audience members to feel like, Oh, maybe I could. Right. then I think you're, I think you should adjust your presentation format. Sure. You should, even if you don't want everyone to do it. Uh, which is difficult because burlesque, as as I've noticed, is one of those disciplines where because it feels accessible, there are people who see it and then immediately try to do it. Well, not immediately, but eventually try to do it. And that is one of those disciplines that you can't say. You can't say that about you know, ballet. You can't say that about tap. It may encourage you, or Broadway show, or opera, it may encourage you to explore your level of it, but if you see bar burlesque, you could be doing bar burlesque in no time. Yeah. If you go to the Neil Simon Theater and see a show, <laughs> you will probably not be doing Neil Simon Theater level work that quickly. You right. might do community theater, you might take an acting class, you might do whatever you want. But burlesque is one of those situations where you can technically edge your way in really quickly mm-hmm. and be just one of the folks really fast. And we've seen that happen. Yeah. We've seen performers who who are relatively new to the scene who are gigging just as hard as everybody else does. Yep. And I think that makes some performers uh, some mm, sometimes scared, sometimes resentful. Why are these people getting work when I've put in my time? 
Yeah. Uh, and I will tell you why the those people are new and we like things that are fresh and exciting. And there was a time where you were exuberant and not so bitter. <laughs> well, and also, <laughs> like, and something that Magical Girl prides themselves on is giving a stage to newer performers. Yes. While we book we book our headliners, as it were, people who are names or who are at least known in the New York scene, we also try and leave room. The seasoned. We leave yeah. room for newer performers, and that's why we do the new review, which is 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 not only for new performers, but it's for new acts or for workshopping, because that's mm. a show where it's not even about like there's an agreement you yeah. will get video and feedback, yeah, but you're you allowed go- to play, right? I mean, there are very few shows that are geared towards playing, right? Most shows are geared towards being your A plus self for analysis. And that analysis either comes in two forms. It comes from the audience perspective as, as accessing it and then feeling really good about it or not liking it, but hopefully feeling really good about it and saying, I felt connected. Or for uh, performers to analyze it and then compare themselves and contrast themselves, right. criticize it, not necessarily in a negative way, but criticism mm-hmm. as a concept, uh, peer review, you know, um, or then book. Because right. there are so many times where we as performers who are also producers see acts that we then know that would be right for our show. Right. Well, yeah, and it's funny. Being a producer and not a performer yet, I'm working on some stuff, but mm. like not feeling comfortable performing yet, I often defer to Betty and Reina, my co-producers, because I'll – like for the video game show, I did a lot of the booking for that because I also mm-hmm. am more knowledgeable about video games than both of them. They know, but not as much as I do. And so they leaned on me to book that show. But like for other shows that I'm not – Because you know the media. Right. Right. Um, and that show was also an anomaly because I had had that set list kind of in my head for a while. Mm-hmm. And like it was – all established performers for the most part. And it was because I... Established acts, too. Right. I think most of that were existing acts mm-hmm. that you then were I able think, to curate. I think the Waluigi act that Dick did was the only new right. one for the show. Um, and he had been wanting to do it for a while. It was actually originally supposed to be in our December show that we did, but he wasn't available because it was a December song that he uh... used, The Sporting Life. Um but for other shows, I lean on Raina and Betty to pick performers and pick flow because they perform. Mm. And I'm not yet. And so it's a perspective that I don't really have quite yet. Yeah, but you can set. You yeah. have the ability to curate. Sure. But I think it's when picking performers, if we get like 30 submissions, which I'm exaggerating, and like I see na- mm. names that I know, I'll lean on them. Whereas the newer performers, they'll yeah. know better because they do the new review, which I can't always attend. Yeah, I find, I mean, I don't, White Elephant uh, has scaled back uh, in our, in both our terms of, uh, in terms of our scheduling. We're mm-hmm. now twice a month. Twice a month, bar. right. Every, every, uh, more or less. I like every. saying first and third because some months have five right. weeks. Okay. So that gets a little iffy if you say every other. Um, so yes, but we are at least twice. Uh, Pride might be interesting. I'm not quite sure how we're handling that yet. Uh, but that said, um that also means that since we're scaling back how many shows, and that's largely due to the fact that I'm also now by Coastal, which is also a development that, that since our last visit. Yes, you've uh, been gotten engaged and gotten married. I have. Shout I waste out no to time. Rob, who we I love. Waste, I waste no time whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that was, and we can we can get into the specifics of that uh, if you'd like, <laughs> but. Um, Specifically, what the hell I'll do once I get to California. But um, that also meant that the theme shows 
got chopped right. for the most part because I have too many people who I want to include in the show and people who want to be included in the show for me to then automatically know that there's a specific theme that threads them together right? without keeping weeks entirely unbooked so that I plan for those weeks specifically and say, no, that's Celine Dion night. No, that's Star Wars night. No, that's horror movie night or what have you. I think the next one that we have even tentatively planned is uh, the first week of July because Jason, who is the owner of the bar, it's his birthday week. Mm -hmm. And so what happens a lot of times is we'll do uh, a theme that is most appropriate for him. Uh, as sort of a, a thank you to, for his service, as right. well as an opportunity if he wants it. He's done it three times oh, uh, wow. to also perform. Cool. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask because we're getting close to May, and you've done the last couple of years, you've done a variation on yeah. May the 4th, yeah. or, you know, the franchises strike back about other franchises that weren't necessarily but a direct Star commentary on, on Star Wars. Wars. Yeah. And so I'm getting the sense that you're not going to be doing something like that. I will that. not yeah. be. I will not be. Um... But I'm not sense. in town. I'm not in town, actually. Oh. I will be gone for all of May. I'll be in California. Um, I got into the Hollywood Burlesque Festival. Oh, awesome. Yes. That's amazing. Thank you. Uh, which will be the end of May, beginning of June. It's one of those, like, I, I it, it always sucks when an event is literally two days long, but they're in both months. Both months, <laughs> like the end and beginning. Um, but, so yeah, I, I'm already going to be in town for that. So I've taken the opportunity to spend more time with my husband before that happens at the end of his school term, because he's a college professor, and then try to book locally in that area, which I've been, which, I mean, as of the time of this recording, I've been able to secure two more appearances oh, while cool. I'm there. That's great. Yes. Thank you. Um, I... It's funny you mentioned that your husband's a professor and now hot for teachers in my head, and I feel like you need to do a hot for teacher act. You know, I'm good. I'm good. As someone who has never quite been a fan of that song. Oh, uh, yeah. It is not a... Uh, let's just say Van Halen hasn't lived up, but hasn't aged well. And I love Van Halen, but, like, some of the David Lee Roth stuff is not uh, okay. Yeah. To say the least. It's also, I mean, I've seen people do far better. Uh, Delilah is, has a great act to that. Yeah. So, and also, someone fills Hotford, that void for me. And Hotford Teacher is like one of those songs like Diamonds Are Forever and those kind of things. Like, I would sooner do Diamonds Are Forever. Really? Interesting. <laughs> huh. Um, I would do Diamonds Are Forever and not wear a damn diamond. Well, that's like. Um, um, Diamond, uh, Nasty the Canasta has a dim Diamonds Are Our Girl's Best Friend act mm -hmm. where she comes on stage dressed as a minor with a giant pickaxe. Perfect. Because it's Nasty Canasta. Of and course. Like, like, and so. Does she find a diamond at the end? I don't remember. Okay. I don't remember. It's been a while since I've seen it, but that was her answer to like everyone has a Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend yeah. act if you're in burlesque. And so that was her answer to it. I think that's, we've taken a dip. But yes, Isn't, absolutely. Well, because, so much, in fact, it's even referenced in the movie Burlesque. Oh, Christina wow. Aguilera has a fantasy sequence in her head where she does Diamonds Are Diamonds Girl's, Girl's Best Friend. Well, and I think part of that is because neo-burlesque has leaned a lot more into a lot of reference material and modern stuff and nerdlesque, oh, yeah. whereas like classic burlesque is still abound, and there are tons of performers who do it beautifully, yeah. but it's not in the same form it was even two, three, or four years ago. No, it's actually far more common, and I love it. I love, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan, which is something that I... 
appreciate still in myself after doing this for as long as I have. Mm-hmm. Be 13 years this September. Wow. Yes. Yeah, I've been DJing. I've done anything. This July, it'll be seven years I'm DJing. Um, and I've only been producing for however long the yeah. Magical Go Burlesque has been around. So almost three years. But there are performers years, like uh, like Hita St. Cyr mm-hmm. um, or even Monroe Lilly who are, who are very classically... Bodied and shaped, and way that they, the way that they vava voom on stage, mm-hmm. and the way that they dress a lot of the time. I mean, Monroe's a little edgier, but uh, than than classic burlesque. But they'll do it in gown and glove, but they'll use modern music, or they'll yeah. use. Uh, it doesn't even have to necessarily be a rock song. Akita uh, Sincere is a gorgeous act to a Fiona Apple ballad. And when she sent me that music, she does it to uh, Slow Like Honey, which was not a single. Right. Not probably well-remembered um, by by non-fanatics of that album, but as someone who was and is a fanatic of that album uh, title, uh, when she sent it to me, I was like, I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. Because again, it, it's slow like honey. It's, it's that song. It's that kind of like slow burn that's not it doesn't it has no guitar bangs in it or right. grinds and i i love it i love that and but i also i'm all about uh just mixing it up i, well, yeah. I, I love a classic sensibility don't get me wrong i do love a classic sensibility mm-hmm. i think it it lets the audience know early on that you've put effort in sure I think that neo-burlesque, a lot of times there is an anticipation that because it's perhaps dressed down or perhaps that it's not as shiny, that there is not effort put in, which is a misconception. And uh, But I think that well done classic look, noir or, you know, Hollywood bombshell or something like that, it lets the audience know that you've put that work in. Now you have to deliver. Right. You've made yourself a beautiful portrait. Now what are you going to do? And I love when that beautiful portrait is rocking out. I think it's so cool. Me too. And what's funny is, like, you mentioned classic burlesque, and the the names that come to mind that do classic acts aren't classic bodies or even classic personas. Like, Well, I mean, I mean when I said Keita, I specifically meant the, the curvy shape. Right. And the, you know, but, but she, I, she, 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 she's just you know, drowned in a gown. You can't you can't take that from her, right? But what I'm saying is like my my favorite classic performers aren't even people that like um, like mainstream media would consider classic performers sure. like Broody. Like okay, I yeah. think classic. Yeah. I think Broody because of all the performers I know that I talk to regularly, he's the one who does yeah. more. If his acts reference anything, it's a style, a time period, sensibility, or sensibility yeah. less than direct references. Which yeah. he said that he's he's working on some stuff and he does want to do more of that, but for the most part. He does, he references a period of time or mentality or style, which I always find really gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, underrated classic uh, Tiger Bay. Oh, yeah. She has, she's a big weirdo, but she also, um, she can do a a smolder. Oh, absolutely. Really nice. One of my favorite acts of hers that I don't know if other people would consider classic, but to me it feels classic because even though it's sort of referential, it's more about how she moves. Her vigilante act Mm -hmm. to me is a classic act because it's all about her smolder and her Mm -hmm. movement. Like the fact that she's wearing armor and has a baseball bat makes it a nerd reference as well. 
ish like apocalyptic she's, yeah. I'm like but yeah. for me it's more classic because like i'm watching her face i'm watching right. how she moves her hips like because it's all very her, um, purposeful movement her electric eel act is also very similar in that regard yes because that's not a specific reference a fandom as far as i know yeah uh there's not a specific fandom a lot of her that. acts are not specific fandoms right they're just weird awesome stuff like her her lightning storm act yes. her burger mom act. Her long, have you seen the long socks act no. Yeah, check that out. I'll have to look that yeah. up. Yeah, uh, Tiger Bay is a performer who, like, I just don't understand her how her brain works, and it's yeah. fascinating. Well, I mean, there was at one point I had, um, I look at, at the performers that I book, and I try to be uh, as varied as possible mm-hmm. uh, for many reasons, not the least of which I try to curate an audience that will feel like they'll have missed something if they don't come a week. Right. I want them to feel that they have to come. And that, they're, you know, you do what you can. Um, and there are some performers that I are immediately go to. And the reasons for that are not necessarily because I assume the audience will say, I can't wait for them to see what they do next. Right. But because working with them elevates the show. It Absolutely. allows the show to be as good as it can be. And it, frankly, it allows some of the performers who are also quite good to explore, be a little bit less polished than normal, perhaps. Right. Or be allows me, certainly, I'll say it right now, uh, I am am by no means threatened by uh, working with Broody or Monroe or Jack Barrow or or Lute Alfred Douglas, these performers in who are also um, male-presenting, boylesque, burlesque performers, Working with them, I feel, makes me feel better because there's a certain relief in knowing that the show is going to be as good as it is Mm -hmm. because I've booked them. And then it lets me concentrate on my own work, uh, on my own personal act or acts that I'm doing that night, and then know that I'm... It's not that I'm fighting to live up to that level. It's that I know I have my own level. And then if you have the, I mean, if you have the the absolute privilege of having more than one or two of them in one single show, yeah, then that show is going to be, you know, a bomb blast. You can't, you can't improve upon that. Yeah, and that also that's also true of of non-binary and female presenting performers. Absolutely, I think for me the. Like, now that I have a producer brain, like, so, for example, the video game show, which mm-hmm. you are a headliner for, Thank with you. your Kefka act, which mm-hmm. I had been on a mission to book since I saw it at Nerd Last Fest, which was the first act I ever saw you do. Um, but, like... Ever, ever? Ever, ever, I think. Wow. Because you did it that year at the Nerd Last Fest. That I was did. the act I you did. did. Um, that was the last year that Danger produced it, was the, uh-huh. your first year. That was yeah. that... Where was that? That was um, at... La, uh, La Poisson Rouge? La, yeah, one night was at La Poisson Rouge and one night was at... Um, My night was at La Poisson Rouge. Right, yeah. and then the other night was, was at, at... Not Hammerstein. Webster. Uh, Webster Hall. Yeah, may it rest in peace. May it rest in peace, though supposedly it may come back. Who knows? But uh, I had always wanted to book that act, and I also knew that if I had, if I, if you agreed to do the show, that you had to headline because I know the energy of that act. Okay. And while... Any of those acts probably could have headlined that show. For me, I felt like I could bank on you also because that character is a well-known video game character. And also because, like, for example, Petra's act, even though, like, in the marketing she was billed as Mario, yeah. the act is a reveal. And it's yes. and so at the live show, I didn't mention it, you know, because I wanted it to be a surprise and a reveal. Right. Um, 
so I didn't talk about it in the preamble, but I felt so confident about that show because I had so many performers I trusted in yeah. it. Um, you know, and I booked acts that I knew well or that I knew the performer would deliver on. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, Dick Move, while I didn't know that act, I did know his Venom act and I did right. know his... You, you know, know what he's capable of. Right. And mm -hmm. that, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time he delivers in mm -hmm. a way that floors the audience. Right. Well, some performers, when you're booking, you're very specific about what you want from them. Right. And some performers are like, what do you got? Yeah. What do you got? And, and like, for for the for the comparative point for the December show, which you also mm -hmm. headlined. Um, was I last last? I thought either you or Anya was last last. I was no, pretty I was sure it was you. Yeah, yeah, you were last last. Um, you created a new act for that show. I did. And that show was, I literally threw out to the world, hey, who wants to do a, a December show? Yeah. I just want to fill the room. We're going to have a live band. And you said, I want to do this song. I have an idea. And I said, right. do it because well, to, I trusted you. To your credit, though, I probably would not have submitted for that show had it not been a Magical Girl mm. show. Because I, having worked with you and knowing that, like, if it had just been, you know, XYZ perform a producer who I either didn't know very well or that I didn't have a, a, a friendship with, it wasn't a... It's not a fandom, especially... Yeah, fandom shows are tough. Right. Because you got to... How referential do you want to be? And when it's a musical reference that everyone's doing an act to these songs, but there's no visual that's implied. Right. Um, I, was a, I would have been perhaps uh, apprehensive about submitting for it. I probably would not have said, what could I do? But because it was Magical Girl and having worked with you and, and knowing what y'all are capable of... And knowing that it would have been a good show, that's why I felt confident to submit for it. That's interesting to know. I mean, it's just, it's... I mean, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not, because it's not, well, for one thing, it's not a band that I, I adore. Right. It's a band that I'm familiar with to right. an extent, and it was specifically a song that I already knew. Right. Um, that song, I liked independent of it being the Decemberists. Right. So... But what I like about doing those musical shows, the shows based on a band, is that... Because I'm a music nerd, sure. like that's interesting to me. Is I get interpretation. To well, and I get to curate a set list literally just based on the music because the act almost doesn't matter for the curation of the set list. I want to create a flow based on the music, right? Unless, well, I will say yes, with the possible exception if someone is subverting what's happening sure. in the song. Absolutely. Which definitely happened when I did the Celine Dion shows. Right. Because there are people who are not playing it straight and there are people who are playing it totally straight. Right. And what was interesting about the December show is that everyone played it straight, but to different levels. Like uh, Maggie McMuffin's drag debut yeah. act that she did, which was freaking phenomenal, which was also a new act, that was sort of tongue-in-cheek. But still played pretty straight because it followed the narrative. It was an it was a right. narrative act, and that was really interesting to me. But everyone else played it straight, and you you know the Decemberists the soundtrack, are, yeah, right. Yeah. And what's been really fun post that show is so for the playlist I curated for that show. Also, the songs from the performers obviously weren't in the playlist. Mm -hmm. But after the show was over, since I don't know when we're going to do it again, I reinserted the performers' music in order into the playlist mm -hmm. and it still sounds really great in mm. order which makes I a love. great mixtape still it does yeah. and i thought that was really fascinating what i like about booking a show based on the music versus the acts is that mm -hmm. mixtape vibe because booking the video game show is all based on the acts 
You know, and, like, I separated, I put Waluigi in set one and Mario in set two because I wanted to separate the Mario characters. I mean, I come from uh, a history as a child uh, making fake set lists and making fake discographies for musicians that I made up. It was a thing I did. Wow. I know. I already knew about the fanzines, but this is another yeah. level. Well, so I created, I created, uh, I don't remember what quite came first, but I think I created like a girl band, like a, like a. Spice runa- Girls? No, more, more rock. Bang- okay. Oriented. So like Bangles maybe. More Bangles ru- Runaway style. Okay. And then I, but I say made up, like I wrote down, I would sometimes also design the, the CD covers, but, uh. Not, I'm not an artist. So I would just write the songs that I thought, I'd, write, I'd actually to the point where I would know how long they were, and then I would also make, like, this were the singles, and then these were the producers, and then it sort of spanned, and I created, like, and I, this was like a, a, a sort of a time waste technique that I had just to sort of fill time, uh-huh. and I would do it even in, in, in school when I was bored, I would do it when I was home, it would, when I was, before I went to sleep, I do not know what encouraged it, um, and I don't want to... And I did not, I do not want to imply that I shared this with the world. Um, <laughs> I was usually pretty private about it. Not that I was necessarily embarrassed, but I don't think anybody would care. Right. Um, this, this fictional bad, and I would, then it would go, spill into what the tour s- schedule was and things like that. That's really funny. I have a few of them because uh, eventually I did do them typed, but um, I don't know really what inspired it but i know that because that that whatever it is is in is in me um it spills into being useful uh when i am either doing playlists for events or when i'm scheduling shows but then of course shows always throw you a curveball because someone has to leave early or this song is this long and i need it to be i need someone a little longer than that because i'm going in and i need to follow it and i need extra time there's there's always something uh, but even there's sort of it's sort of a fun puzzle about it. Like right. I, I call it the uh, and then knowing which performers are working with, I call it the uh, you know the the goose, the grain, and the fox. <laughs> which right. do you put in the boat first and get right. across? Um, and that also pu- uh, falls into play with performers that um, either don't play well together or that I would love to see together. Right. To put a positive spin on it. That are like, I don't think I've ever seen these people in the same show. Yeah, kind of like zhuzhing them. Like, let's get these two together, see what happens. And frankly, I mean, that's going to happen when you come to looking at people of similar body types that are almost never in the same show. Right. Uh, Lillian Bustle said that the Silver Tusk Awards was, I think, the second show ever that she and Fancy Feast were both in the same show. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. It just doesn't happen. And then uh, to have multiple people of color, multiple of of of, uh, of gender expression, it's just maneuvering uh, and and keeping it, you know, interesting for the audience so the eye doesn't get lazy, but also celebrating the fact that um, there are people who may look alike, but their expression is entirely different. Because right. you cannot tell me at all as much as they may have in common that Lillian Bustle and Fancy Feast are very very similar performers they're just not no not at all absolutely so it, I think it also having similar shaped people or similar you know people with perhaps uh, similarly melanated people or, or people of, of similar styles or looks they're going to be uh, they're going to subvert even expectation in that regard yeah uh, you could have a show with 
two very statuesque black performers like Monroe Lilly and Miscellaneous Dom Top. And those performers, while you may assume um, incorrectly that they would have a lot in common, they just don't. No, and they're they actually don't. very good friends. Absolutely. And yeah, I, but, so yeah, and that's the funny And in thing. some way, there are two sides of a similar coin. Right. But there's a lot of change in that pocket. Right, but then again, the way they perform, sometimes there's a ton of similarity, like mm. just how they present themselves. So they're both very dramatic. Yes. Like, big big steps, you know, yeah. presenting performance. But miscellaneous is almost always going to come from more of a dancer. Right. So they're always going to there's always going to be different strengths that uh-huh. are being pulled. Yeah, uh, and that's true also in with Fancy. There is an athleticism that I think she pulls from, and Lillian pulls from more of a uh, a sweet. Yeah, there's more of a sweet in Lillian, and there's more of a a sardonic in Fancy. Well, and she's more of a, uh, uh, I'd say Lillian's more of a classic performer. She likes to sing. She likes to do, Definitely like... an interpretation of it. Yeah. But she has some weird shit in her. Oh, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. And I don't even know what question I asked that got us on this tangent. Uh, um, I think we just sort of talking about set listing and putting yeah, shows together. Well, and I yeah. think because I was also excited to share in the fact that I've definitely... Uh, been inspired by you and taken a lot of cues from you as far as producing and Please as far as... Please tell me as, more. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> but no, I, like, also seeing you perform over the years now and having to work, gotten to work with you, having hosted White Elephant, yeah. DJing for White Elephant, you were the first person to give me a place to be me besides Magical Girl. Like, I DJed for other people, but I never... Ho- you're the first show I hosted that yeah. wasn't Magical Girl. And you've let me do it more than once, which means I wasn't terrible at it. Or not that many people complained. <laughs> no, not that many. Yeah, that's I, good. They say how many letters count as multiple people? <laughs> no. Uh, but that's the thing also, is a lot of times, and that's my feeling, especially towards White Elephant, which ties to my how inviting is your bar show, frankly. Right. Um, it's that we're on your side. Everyone's on your side. I don't, I don't want... We're we're all going to have moments where we we feel a certain way about performers, or we feel a certain way about the chances that they're given, or that we missed, or what we're not capable of, but that we've seen other people. But the opportunity that White Elephant provides is for us to celebrate what we can't also do ourselves. Right. And so when I and I mean I I feel that working in a weekly context and now a semi-weekly context. I mean as it is, I mean I still had other shows that I was doing right and meeting other people. You were never someone I would call lazy or slow going. I'm certainly busy. Yes. Um, there are varying degrees of effort involved, <laughs> but I'm certainly busy. Yes. Um, but I mean, having worked with someone like them appeal that I now have acts that I can say, I wouldn't be doing that act that way. Had I not met them appeal. Yes. My mouse act is an example of me sort of not letting go because I think femme for as much as we give her credit for being ridiculous, there is a concentration there. Oh, absolutely. There's a focus because she's actually a fairly quiet person off yeah. the stage. Yeah. Um, but you would never guess that by right. her performances. And it's a great gift if you get her to laugh, like really laugh. It's my favorite. Usually I can do it by just telling her after an act how stupid she is. Yeah. 
that's usually a good way to go left because my favorite thing about the burlesque community is that for the most part it's unanimously understood that if you call someone stupid or an ex stupid it's a compliment mm. it's that it's okay, over yeah, the top like, folks you're gonna see some stupid Dude. shit tonight yeah absolutely and yeah. you know but also yeah. uh, something that I take I, I would give you credit for is my interactions with the audience have changed in a way because of the way you address the audience that it's not just ladies and gentlemen that it's not mm. just you know yeah actually i've removed the term ladies and gentlemen from my general vocabulary and i try to as yeah. well and i first started noticing it at your shows but also i give a lot of my um not my queer awakening because i've always been bi but like i guess my learning mm. and growth in queer spaces to white elephant because it was your, impl the f your implementation it was the first space where I saw a drag queen one minute and then a uh, non-binary performer the next and then, you know, mm -hmm. a gay performer and then, mm -hmm. like, and all different body types, all different walks of life. And mm -hmm. I just hadn't had that experience at other shows because a lot of shows I had were very straight presenting, even sure. if they weren't straight. Well, I mean, but that's the thing is that burlesque performer, drag queen or drag performer, um, all of these are distinctions. They're job titles. Right. They're, and we, we gender them. Which is funny, but yeah. we do. We gender them, but that that means we can under ungender them if we want to. Right. If we want to focus on that, and I mean, I actually was a I was a fan of the term "ladies and gentlemen" because I think it's a really elegant phrase. I think right. it just sounds very, you know. Uh, but there was a point where it started hitting my ear wrong. Right. And I I never particularly liked the the variations of "ladies and gentlemen" that included additions. Right. Um, the I spoke to Anya Keister about uh, there's a segment in Kinky Boots, which is an imperfect film, but is a lot of fun, uh, where they say, uh, ladies, gentlemen, and those who have yet to make up their minds. And I get what that line implies to some people, but I believe that what you feel it's implying, you're inferring. Right. Uh, yeah. And I think there's a distinctive difference. Uh, but what that what that film does not include for better or worse, is it doesn't include people who have made up their minds and they're neither of those things. Right. And that's that's just either a failing of that film if you feel that it, it doesn't properly do it or it is just an element of that film if you feel it's a non-issue. Um, I will let other people handle that. <laughs> right. Um, I feel it is, a, it is an element of that film and that character hasn't, been exposed to what they what they eventually may right that that film is a time capsule like most films are we have a real obsession with making things timeless um, yeah that's a whole other we have thing. a we have a real we have a real obsession with saying that this movie has to apply forever and it, it frankly it can't. no it doesn't yeah um and that's a lot to ask of our you know filmmakers um but to that end um so, I mean, I've heard people like, uh, who have, uh, this, uh, and those in between, or those other, and I'm like, that, I mean, I get your inclusivity, but it still feels rather forced. So I would just like to avoid it entirely. Well, yeah, you're, you're and people who don't have time for that nonsense oh, well. variation. Because frankly, gender is, is if, if it is indeed, if we're, all, if we're at least going to agree on the, on the idea that it is a construct. Yeah. Uh, some people may say it is a construct that, um, matters, and some people say it's a contract that doesn't matter, and some people say it's a contract that, uh, you know, is God's way. Right. And that may, in that all of those things are, you know, have their levels of validity. But, um, 
there's no reason to force uh, the issue right. when you're just introducing people. It's it's really what it is is that it's saying, I know that gender is a construct. Some of us have chosen that construct. Some of us don't know we have that choice yet. And some of us are not comfortable figuring that out right now. Right. I I personally, while I identify as a man and uh, specifically have used the term gay man, I also use the term queer. Mm-hmm. And I know that for some people, uh, a large portion, in fact, the word queer does not have positive connotations. The term queer is a slur huh. and it is something that is said about other people, but is not something that everyone can reclaim because not everyone has agreed on it. Really? I didn't know that. Oh, absolutely. You I swear, you google it and you will find I mean I folk. Be- Yeah, no, I believe you. I mean yeah, I, I find it a very inclusive term. Me too. I, it was a phrase that it was a term uh, or a word that I hadn't grown up with. Right. And that may be the difference. Right. I grew up with very very little uh slur in my in my hist- in my existence because by the time I was in middle school and high school when people were using you know sexuality or gender expression as a failing as a human being um, or as a, as a way of being different or in, in calling that in a negative context uh, the, you just said gay yeah because that's what you meant right. And you, they, they, you meant faggot, but yeah. you didn't have to say faggot. Right. Um, and that was interesting for me because I didn't really grow up much with that either. Right. To a degree, yes. Yeah, I, I grew up with it in high school. I, I remember people calling me gay or saying that's gay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I don't, I don't remember, but that's, that's all I kind of remember. I don't remember many people when I was young calling me using the word faggot Mm -hmm. i I feel like if they did it was rare it was more what you're saying it was an older person's term at that point right yeah um but also and then an older older person's term or uh at least on this coast right i mean uh, your queer will definitely still has an existence in the midwest right as a as a current slur right and it still can here too i mean i i'm of the opinion that anything can be a slur as long as it is it is not the technical term and you use the word fucking in front of it yeah if you say fucking something and you're saying it you actually even if it is the technical term um it's still with an aggression it becomes an aggression yes And I understand there are people who, who are of the opinion that, that you can say, um, I mean, that and also physical violence. Um, right, obviously. But there are people who say that you can reclaim terms that have a, a painful past, but that it, it gets murky because, I mean, even Mean Girls, which is, you know how our generation exists pretty much <laughs> everything goes back to <laughs> everything mean girls. goes back to mean girls um that tina fey's character and it's important to remember that tina fey also wrote that film yeah that you have to stop calling yourself sluts and whores it just gives boys an excuse to call you sluts and whores and that line has always just sort of pinged me yeah because i don't think that's true and i think that's a shitty way of 
of, uh, of looking at it. No, the way I refer to myself does not give you the, the permission to refer to me that way Right, one well. has nothing to do with the other. And that, that it gets into uh, derogatory language that uh, white people and white cis people traditionally feel entitled to when it comes to the black community and it comes to the transgender community. Those two words, and you already, dear listener, you already know exactly what words those are because, you know, non-language is powerful. Um, those, we are at a point where we're so impatient with, I think, cultural progression and cultural movement and quote unquote PC culture and millennials and all that, that we just want to say, fuck it. Let's just, let's just have access to all the words right, or all the phrasing. And I'm like, no, that's not responsible. No. So I understand if people don't like the word queer. Yeah. I, I happen to like it. I happen to identify by it, which yeah. means you can't tell me not to identify as it. Uh, but I'm not going to call you a queer person if that's going to make you uncomfortable. Of course. And, and I think also I've made, I've set a precedent to always ask pronouns and always try mm. and um, be understanding, know what's going mm. on. And, and I found that, fr- and I'm, I have misgendered friends. I have a, fr- I ha- one of my, Good, good friends that I'm not going to call by name just in case they don't want me to mention that I've misgendered them. But because they often present to what I uh, imagine as femme, I accidentally use she often. But whenever I do it, I immediately go, shoot, I meant they, I'm Mm -hmm. sorry. And they are always the sweetest, most understanding person because they know I'm not doing it to misgender them on purpose. They know that it's a mistake because I'm trying, well, because I'm trying to untrain my brain because when I look at someone and they appear as femme to me, my brain wants to use a pronoun that I've always used, even if it's not what they want. And so I'm trying to deprogram that. Like I used to have trouble keeping people's legal and show names separate if Mm. I knew both. And now I, I code switch pretty easily for the most part. I think um, I have the most trouble with Betty and Reyna only because they also don't care that much because sure. they go by both those names. As far as I know, and they can tell me otherwise if they don't necessarily agree. But my understanding is they don't mind. And also because I knew them yeah. before they had show names or that I knew their show names anyway. And so, but there are other performers who absolutely don't want to be identified by their legal names, or I don't even know them. Absolutely. And so, you know, I've gotten so good at code switching, for the most part, I never have that problem. But I still find myself sometimes struggling with pronouns. And again, it's not a malicious thing. It's just, I'm trying to tell my brain, just because that person looks like a boy to me, doesn't mean that's what they want to be identified as. Right. It doesn't mean mean that's what they are. Right. Well, that's just it. You're right. Identify as is the wrong term. That's what they are. And so I try and, and I, and so I'm still pushing against that. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's, it's always going to happen. Right. And we're, I also, we're, we're going to die trying. Yeah, like that's the that's thing. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, we are, we're a cog. We're not, we're not the end all. Yeah. What, what I think is important though, is for us to recognize that we are that cog, we are that middle ground, mm-hmm. and that even if it's not the next generation immediately under us, even if we don't have children that we then teach that to, um, there are there is going to be a group of people where they won't think about it as hard as we do. Right. And that can only happen if we do it. Right. That can only happen Absolutely. if we do it. I mean, that's that's how change works. I mean, that may sound really basic, but um, people get really impatient about it, and they're like, I thought that racism was over, or, oh, you should get over it. And I'm like, sorry, that's never going to happen in your lifetime, and you yeah. might as well just fuck up because... Yeah. We are all going to, our generation 
and I know that we are the same age, but frankly, anyone who's slightly older than us or slightly younger than us, and possibly even further in that spectrum, because age is becoming so impractical, uh, a, a litmus test to understand sophistication yep. and awareness and and um, where you're coming from. I mean, Maturity. I, yeah, I grew up, I grew up of the youngest person of a lot of my social circles because that just that's just how it was. Right. And that was through Rocky Horror, but that was also because I was friendly or friends with people that were actually that would people who would refer to my parents' friends. So I'm like, yeah, but they're my friends too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're not like, you know, going to cocktail parties and talking <laughs> about, you know, the deficit. But we are I have a a, a friendship connection with them on, on whatever level. Um, so I don't even know if we can say generations anymore because what the hell does that even mean? Well, yeah, and it's like the the demographics I feel like don't even mean anything anymore. Like, you know, a lot. You know, you're you know for a fact as well as the listeners that I'm I love a lot of different nerdy nerdy things. And like yeah. one of the things I love is video games, yeah. which used to be considered kids' toys. Kids toys. Yeah. My brother, who I love very much, who's nine years older than me, treats it that way. Right. Not because thirty years old. That's how thirty years ago. That's how it was. Right, presented. and also I think because he has young kids who are now teenagers, which is terrifying to me. Um, to their kids, they're playing video games. To so in his mind, it's still the case. Yeah. But at, he doesn't really look at it this way anymore. But when I first started talking to them about video games, he's like, "Oh, it's kids' toys." Mm. But it's not. There are people older than me who love video games. Yes. Famously, there's a grandmother who plays uh, the game Skyrim on YouTube. Yes, I've seen just her got mocapped to be in the next Elder Scrolls game. They're putting her char- her as a character in that game. Yeah. And it's to celebrate this woman who wouldn't, by demographics, yeah. be the person they'd advertise to, and they're trying to break those stereotypes. I don't know if demographics and the anticipation of what demographics mean takes into account travel. No. I don't. I think at one point, because travel was so impossible for the majority of you know, society, that it was so expensive, that it was so inaccessible that uh, women couldn't go out on their own, like things like that. Right. Um, that we, we've we boxed a lot of um, the expectation on what this person likes or what this person's supposed to like. Um, I talk, I've talked to on my podcast every once in a while when I speak to uh, a performer of color, I think it's important to ask what are some of the preconceived expectations of you as a performer that you are working against because I'm hoping that the next person who listens to that knows not to do it. Right. And I know that that's a lot of, you know, a lot of work on their part to to get into if if it comes up. But it's it's interesting to me whenever uh Nick's Nocturne is a is an example. They are a really fabulous performer that that loves um that has a very gothic mm-hmm. sensibility. And they love uh, sort of like industrial metal music. Mm-hmm. And there was at one point where they, as a a black person who is femme, uh, there was an expectation that they would be uh, an R&B fan. Right. Or that they would somehow be able to um, fit into a booking right. as a certain way. And they're like, nope. Sorry. Yeah. Okay, bye. And that's <laughs> and that's all preconceived. Right. That's Absolutely. that's most of what we're most we're going to be spending all of our lives 
fighting against our own precon uh, preconceived notions and everybody else's. That's part of the deal. Yeah, and I think I think that's something I became more aware of as a producer. I mean, mm -hmm. I also became more aware of it just going to more shows and doing this podcast as yeah. long as I have. Um, but I'm always trying to... That's why I feel like while I do come to this podcast with a mental list of questions, yeah. at the end of the day, wherever the conversation goes, I just follow along. Yeah. Because I want to hear what the guest is thinking mm. and going through and experiencing. Um, you know, I want to take it back to talking about your podcast since you brought it out. Oh, sure. Um, you're in the current second season yes. um, as someone who, at least in this show, has not done seasons yes. and is just as going as long as I can. What are your metrics for seasons and what do you plan? What are your next big things you want to do with this podcast? We're going to talk about your other projects in a minute. Yeah, sure. But like I know I've been a guest on several specials that you've done mm -hmm. um, talking about you did one for Mother's Day talking yeah. about show parents you've done stuff about when RuPaul the hullabaloo with RuPaul putting their foot in their mouth yeah and one and, of the few times yeah <laughs> yeah they never do that yeah um, you know do you foresee yourself doing more stuff like that or trying new things? Um, and what d defines a season for you for the show? I mean, it's a really boring answer, but it, it came up organically. Mm -hmm. uh, 30 episodes is a season. Okay. So, and that it keeps things really easy for me. So I did 30 episodes before I had burnout. Mm -hmm. So that tells me that from there on out, I'll take a two-month break, at least. After 30 episodes. After 30 episodes. Okay. Uh, so as I said, I have 52 yeah. in the can already, which means that the two episodes that I I have next scheduled will go into this current season. And right. the two more that I have after that, which I think is, I have scheduled for next week, will go into that. But once I hit 60, the expectation, although, you know, Who I, knows? I run the business, right? Um, is that I will then take a two-month break. It's not so much that it's a literal season. It's I guess it's more of a cycle, right. you know, like America's Next Top Model, um, <laughs> because it's not literally based on the fall season, which right. is what season means usually. Sure, it's yeah. the spring season or the fall season, but um, but it made sense to me, especially actually, it works out this way where I will be extraordinarily busy when I do take that hiatus if I if I am on schedule. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny. Um, I have no responsibilities for the podcast, but I do take it fairly seriously. Welcome to my world. I know. I mean, the, the, there are no stakes. There's really no stakes. None. Uh, except things are preserved forever. Right. So in theory, it lives forever. Someone still has to listen to it and give a fuck, but it's, it's, it is, there are no stakes. Uh, and there are no transcriptions that I know of. So even that, it's hard. You can't even search. Right. It's it won't it won't easily be found. We, I want the last time I googled autographs. No, actually, the last time I googled uh, we burlesque the podcast, I found a top like something list of burlesque related podcasts. Oh uh, yes. And both of us ended up on yeah. it because and, it's you, because it's based on metrics. It's based on the term, yeah. which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. Because I would have never like yes, I've had a lot of burlesque performers on the show, but I would never have thought. To put this amongst top burlesque-related mm -hmm. podcasts. But, I mean, and God bless her, Anya did the same thing. She yeah. posted not that long ago in several burlesque groups, hey, if you want to talk about burlesque or be on a podcast, these two shows mm -hmm. have burlesque performers. And it, I was really humbled that she thought of me, you know. 
I mean, I'm kind of of the thought. I mean, we're I I talk a lot about how I think drag is more mainstream than burlesque, and I think that that's because well, it's because of, there's a TV show featuring it. Yes, but there's a reason there's a TV show featuring it. Uh, the TV show featuring it has um, a very specific mindset. It still has elements of misogyny. Mm-hmm. It still has men running the show. Yeah. And it still presents... The most successful drag queens in that are fall into really two categories. Either the unattainable ice princess mm-hmm. or the comedy queen. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with either of those criteria. I mean, but there's more than that. But there's more to it. And and those aren't identities. Like, those right. are... Those are Traits, right. but those aren't identities. Right. Uh, but we, but it's easier for us to shorthand that. Yeah. When you get into burlesque and you start dealing with women's agency and women telling their own story and women being varied as they are, mm-hmm. and then people who actually you assume are women but apparently are not, um, and getting into that discussion, it's so complex and it's so their story. That I think that the idea of having, I mean, if it was approachable, we would have had Dita, Dita's next race That's by now. True, yeah. Um, the fact that Dita Vontis, who is relatively concerned the most successful burlesque performer, but not really for her burlesque, right, is, is telling. Yeah, we've we've had how many movies that have included um, everything from drag performers to transgender individuals to um, to men in dresses for gags mm-hmm. those are sub subplots right. those are there's no burlesque sub subplots let alone true. multiple media pre- representation yeah i can only think of relatively recently there were there have been several SNL sketches yes, that I have, have dappled. Very strong opinions about that. I don't blame you. There was one, the there was a magician sketch um, that was like about burlesque magicians yeah. or something that was very like, I thought, who is this for? Because yeah. like I get some of the gags because I know a lot of magicians. That is a very important question. Yeah. Who and like, is this for? Like there was a recent sketch about video games that I actually thought was very funny with mm-hmm. Kit Harrington about a VR game where... This character is just trying to go kill zombies, and he's getting stuck between drama between two NPC characters who just want to bicker or Mm -hmm. talk about each other. I thought that was hilarious. Because you were in that who it was for. But I don't understand how a mainstream non-gamer is going to... I mean, I guess it's fairly translatable, but to me it just seemed funny because I play games. As as much of a... A travesty, as it is frequently referred to as. The Big Bang Theory makes a lot of deeper, nerdy references. That's true. And the thing is, the joke of it is that it's gibberish. Yeah. For the for the, the typical audience. Right. That show is not for gamers no. or enthusiasts. Most of the jokes are laughing or, at them, not with right, them. Right, exactly. So, and I find, actually, there was that recent uh, burlesque sketch... Where um, I don't know his the actor's name, but he plays Jon Snow on Game of Thrones. Kit Harrington. There you go. Yeah, um, he played a uh, a guy who who did a burlesque routine, quote unquote, for his wife's bachelorette party. Right, and it wasn't for burlesque enthusiasts. No, it wasn't for um, burlesque performers. It was for an audience who didn't really know what it was. Right. And that is the point where I was, I sort of felt it was, 
I don't want to say insensitive because who cares? Right. But it wasn't um, it wasn't right. It wasn't correct. Yeah. And I don't know if you can subvert or make fun of something that the general population doesn't have an observational right. idea of. Yeah. Can you make fun of something that you can't play also straight? And I don't think the general purpose of the general purpose audience of Saturday Night Live, certainly not the, the writer of that sketch, because it didn't sound like that person knew everything. Right. It involved tucking. It involved elements of drag. It involved. Um, it feels like they Googled yes, like buzzwords about yes. burlesque, and then put it in a squid. And sure. assumed that it must be similar uh, to the point where, like, that could have been really. Funny. Yeah, and also Kit and Harrington so seems so lazy, right? And Kit Harrington is a good actor who has good timing because, again, in that video game sketch mm. I mentioned, his sincerity oh, was, was the same episode. Yeah, oh, that's funny. Is so funny. Yeah, because he's playing it so straight sure. about how he's concerned about this other character and that right. he really runs this house and he's talking with this gruff like game like yeah. gamer macho guy voice. Like, yeah, it it it, it just seems odd. But it's also really difficult for professionals to then critique it because then we just sound like we're bitching. Yeah. And that we have no sense of humor. Like, right. no, I do. That's why I didn't like it. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't that I didn't think. Some of it was funny. Yeah, Don't absolutely. get me wrong. There were some really funny ideas in that mm-hmm. sketch. But almost none of them were what it was referencing. Right. All of the really great moments in that were largely the cast. Right. Leslie Jones, frankly, is funny. All the time. All the time. Literally everything uh, she does. Which means that I would love to see them in a dramatic role because that tells me that I would love right. to see them in a dramatic uh, role. Uh, Leslie Jones still has done my favorite script in, uh, sketch in recent in recent years because I don't watch a lot of SNL and it's the one she did with Matt Damon about Weezer because I'm also yes. a Weezer fan. I have seen that. But that sketch, because also the, the, I, just the rattling off. Well, and because I'm a music nerd, so and so not bad. only is it impressive that they're going to you know, specific songs and points that actual music nerds I've heard argue, right. but also they're doing it in such a sincere way that exactly. it translates. Which is also, it's still gibberish for people who don't know what they're talking about, right. but it's believable because I didn't know half those references. I know only the singles that Wizard has ever done. I don't know any deep cuts. Right. Um, so the fact that they're able to recite it like that tells me that it's funny because they're they're actually referring to things that are real. Right. The, the delivery of it is important. Right. And, I mean, Leslie had the best line. Like, he's still not naked. It was the best <laughs> line of that sketch. But yeah. to be perfectly blunt, um, it, it was... Again, I struggle with terminology because, again, saying it was disrespectful makes me seem like I'm... I've... I've... You're oversensitive? Maybe. I don't but know. But it was it was it wasn't funny. You know, I, I'll just put it I didn't think it was funny. Yeah. I thought it sucked. I like it frankly, I thought it sucked. It doesn't actually to be fair, it doesn't actually matter if I thought it was offensive, insensitive, incorrect, or whatever. I just thought it sucked. And it's supposed to be funny. And, and so if you don't funny. think it's funny, and it's missing someone, the mark. Frankly, who that should have been for, right. I have to say yeah. a little disappointed. Right. A little disappointed that that will be uh, because burlesque is such a microcosm within a microcosm within a microcosm, that that will be someone's and a couple people for a while the first thing they think of. Of course. Or the second thing they think of. Sure. And high in Google results. Yeah. And it's just that that tells us that we as burlesque professionals and aficionados that if we want our work to be funny. Yeah. And accurate, 
that we have a lot of work to do because we have to start telling more people about it so that when yeah. they write a comedy sketch about it, they get it right. Yeah. Because I know, because I find burlesque hysterical. Yeah. A lot of the time. Oh, me too. And, and I, actually, those are the acts I prefer most of the time. I, I like, yeah. I mean, I like serious acts, but comedy is... Well, no, because it feels good to laugh. Right. Well, It, it was, releases endorphins. Referring, <laughs> referring back to your podcast, uh, your most, your second to most recent episode, as of when we were recording, was with Abby Fantastic. Yes. Yes. And I didn't know she did stand-up. I didn't she, know her much at all. I right. thought I did until I started talking to and her. And it was so great yeah. to hear all of that. Yeah. And, you know, I, yeah, I, I think that for me, while I love... I love, I do love my a good slow burn sexy act, and yeah. if you know I'm attracted to the person, sure, that helps for those kinds of acts. But funny acts, yeah. all it needs to be is funny. It doesn't matter body type, yeah. You know, but also it's funny when you're attracted to that person for the five minutes that they're on stage, right? And but then, then but then, but not usually, not usually. That's that's skill. Yes, that's absolutely. Skill. It is really easy to be fuckable all the time. Yeah. But to be fuckable for five minutes, I think, is, is a skill. <laughs> I would agree. Um, uh, I don't even know where we were going. So we're going to go back to talking about podcasting. Yeah. You've been podcasting for a while. But now, anyone who's been listening to your show has noticed at the end of the show. If they listen. If they listen all the way through, there's a new ad for something there. Yeah. But it's not very clear what's What happening. it is. So um, you're working on a new project that I happen to know because you've told me about it. Do you want to yes. talk a little bit about it? Sure. Sure. It, accountability, man. <laughs> um, so it's a it's a new project on an old project. Uh, in 2011, I started working on uh, a burlesque show that was scheduled for February 2012. Mm-hmm. So most of my 2011 with my then co-director, Femfe Butch was spent on casting and sorting it out. And this was one of those Central Jersey conventions uh, that was very goth and very Renaissance Fair friendly. And the theme of that one uh, was sort of like Halloween in February because Halloween obviously can't come enough. So I wanted to do a a haunted house or Mm -hmm. haunted hotel specifically. Hotels have always been a very important... um, Thing in my in the ether that is me I have dreams a lot that take place in hotels interesting um, and I consider hotels to be an excellent metaphor for what we uh, we as people go through they're transitional spaces mm-hmm. you do not live at a hotel usually and you do not live at you do not stay at a hotel always because it's your idea so sometimes you're staying at a hotel because it just happened that way, because your car broke down, or because you happen to be in the area, or you can't get somewhere, mm-hmm. or you know your your house was ravaged by poltergeists, um, <laughs> and you have to go to the hotel and move the TV out. Um, sometimes that happens. Right. So I wanted to to do that. So I talked to my co-director and I created um, the sketch of it. And uh, with them, I helped create that sketch into a show um, that I spent a lot of time on, and, and it was called The Dead Sexy Hotel, uh, not to be confused with Dead Sexy Burlesque, which also was running at the same time, but I hadn't known Johnny, uh, Johnny Pork Pie yet. Uh, but The Dead Sexy Hotel, which was about this fictional hotel called The Gilman, which was run by um, uh, German immigrants who then disappeared, and then Lionel Gilman renamed it, and... There's sort of a mystery about it, and it wasn't necessarily meant to be horror. 
mm-hmm. it was at least, I mean, gothic horror maybe, because gothic horror is more mood-based. Right, than, than necessarily, know. like, jump scares or anything. Right. I mean, there were there were parts of that show that the cast was real. I mean, we had a really committed cast that created a lot of their acts individually, but had to still be sewn together in right. some way. So for a lot of our, so Halloween, for example, had an Shocking act, that she was involved. Well, this is early, early work with her, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'd only met her in 11, 2011. Um, we had, oh no, I worked with her in 2010. But, um, so, she had an act, and I was like, I want that, I want that character. I don't want that act, though. I want right. that look, though. I want you to be a rock star that has an incident in the hotel. Um, uh, Gretchen Violetta, who I mentioned earlier, who's uh, my very my very dear friend, uh, has a very uh, when she, when she styles herself a specific way has a very um, old Hollywood actress sort of look. Which she is she's it's it's perfect. She has a great face for it, and uh, I wanted her to play an actress mm-hmm. that stays at the hotel. And uh, there were other characters that I was really particular about. I wanted ghost hunters. Um, I played a drifter who had like a trophy case of people that, uh, of, of objects that he had gotten along the way, which implied that he was either a serial killer or that he was a thief mm-hmm. or that he was some otherwise, um, you know, nefarious individual. And then he has a, a moment of conscience in the hotel and he calls the police and he goes, he, he uh, continues his narrative. Uh, and the centerpiece of this was a character named Denise, who was the daughter of the German immigrants who disappeared. Now, the German immigrants were, depending on, on what you believe, because I kept things open and I like I like the idea of an unreliable narrator, mm-hmm. um, either were shipped away, gotten rid of by Lionel, who just didn't want them around, right. but she didn't go with them. The daughter didn't go with them. And the question then becomes, where what happened to Denise? Right. Why? Where is is she the spirit of the Gilman? Right. That is creating all of this unrest. And for the purposes of our show, yes. Right. For that show, yes. However, I wanted to explore the opportunities of what that show couldn't, because uh, it was a burlesque show. And so you're looking to create it as an audio drama. Well, right now, what I want to do, uh, sort of inspired by uh, concepts that anything from, like, um, I mean, that show was written before I got to see Sleep No More. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I cannot deny that once I saw Sleep No More, that it did not influence influence it at all. Absolutely, it did. Down to to, um, a few song choices that I wanted as, like, little interstitials. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but I also was heavily influenced by Twin Peaks, and I was also heavily uh, influenced by um, uh, old Hollywood films and uh, Vincent Price, and just sort of. Um, I also like there's 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 a question of why is it always a Victorian ghost? Why is there yeah. anything? Why are there no modern right? Ghosts? And and this also happened before American Horror Story right. had their hotel season, which actually I have. Conscious, consciously not finished right. because I didn't want it to rip off. Um, but because that was, I think, 2013, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Shit, I was on the, I was on the cusp," <laughs> um, and I didn't do anything with it. And I said, "You know what? A House of Leaves was another example of like this sort of unreliable hodgepodge, piece it together, figure it out," which is why it's a little bit more mystery based, right? And 
I want the supernatural reasoning behind things to not be the only reason things happened. What if there is no supernatural aspect? We right. as humans constructed this concept of what Denise does. What happened to the people who were actually there? Why? And I wanted to um, create sort of like an audio dossier of, of documents and pieces and short stories and um, performative pieces mm-hmm. that sort of helped move it along. Um, I cannot promise it'll be particularly linear. I did say that I was influenced by Twin Peaks, <laughs> um, but I wanted it to. I wanted. I wanted to enter that world again. And so, is this? This is going to be a podcast. It is going to be released as if it was a podcast. Okay. I guess it's really more of an anthology series. Okay. Um, and. Um, but it is going to be like I am going to release it on, on podcast. Platforms. platforms. Yeah. And do you have an idea of like an, a loose ETA of when you'd like to start releasing it? Um, yes. Um, I would like it to uh, be out during the summer months. Um, okay. I do not at this time know if I want it to be a regular, regular thing. Like uh, right now comes I comes out like, every week or every month right, or something. I do that right now with, with the Weber Last podcast and frankly that can be a lot sometimes. Yeah. Um, Are you considering releasing it like in a chunk like all on Netflix? With like Maybe? multiple, like multiple episodes. Maybe. Okay. Maybe, and they're not really episodes. That's the thing is, they're really going to be more of fragments. Okay. Some things are, and just like audio files and like things that are um, just yeah. So probably I might like dump like five, and then so those five might not have anything to do with each other, but they'll have something to do with each other in the in, in the context. Interesting. Um, so it's it's an it's a unconventional way of of, of doing it, which is kind of scary because it's not. It, it, There's it seems, no roadmap. Yeah, it almost seems easier if I did just write like you know like a two hundred page novel it or gets, do something like um, um, Night Vale, where it's like mm. it's it's incoherent but coherent. Like right, and it's I mean it will be written right, but it does. Ha- and I also want to be able to include because I am a burlesque person and white elephant and. The Gilman story, honestly, is a is a burlesque um, history, uh, or has has roots in in my burlesque work. Uh, I will be working with burlesque professionals right. in much of the construction of it. And so for whether, recording the audio files, recording and stuff. the audio, I want them. I want to use their voices, and it is frankly, it's it's not a lot different than any performer who has a vanity project that they want to do. Yeah. Where they're like, hey, I'm friends with Neil Patrick Harris. Let me call him. Right, um, of course, absolutely. There's there's people who do this all the time, and I'm like, y'all are my friends, and also, wouldn't it be neat if we, we were able to... And the thought is also, like, th- this might, again, legitimize and elevate some of the burlesque performers' um, awareness mm-hmm. to show that we aren't just stripping in bars, right? Um, but we also are personalities yeah absolutely and that we are public figures and i think that that's a good thing for burlesque and the industry i agree we we struggle a lot to fight for terminology in the industry that is so inconsequential that let's let's elevate let's let's actually like wouldn't it be cool if burlesque performers were on talk shows like why isn't right? this why isn't that i mean happening? that's that's part of the reason why I started autographs was not so much like burlesque specifically, but it was this idea yeah. that I wanted, I wanted a talk show where people talk for a long time. Yeah, and there were a couple of shows doing it. One of my great influences is Kevin Pollak and his chat show, which just recently ended after ten years. But like 
long form conversation is what I'm interested in. Yeah. When Craig Craig Ferguson was the closest to it in nightlife, when he would have an mm. honest conversation with someone that was like ten or fifteen minutes, yeah. but I wanted more of that. Right. Well, because he he was actually a genuine host. Right. He was someone, off book I mean, almost all the time. I I don't care for most late night hosts. Um, I'm not a Jimmy Fallon fan. Me neither. Um, I Co- never particularly found Letterman or Leno to be particularly insightful. The only traditional one I really like is Conan, and that's because his comedy sensibilities would always come through in his late show. I wish I was more of a Conan fan. He has a podcast now called um, Conan Needs a Friend, and um, it's just him doing long-form interviews. Yeah. And you might enjoy that more. I could check it out. He did an episode with the My Favorite Murder murder Ladies Mm. that I'm I'm probably going to get to eventually. Right. So... But yeah, so that's that's the idea, and I don't want people to think that it's supposed to be anything. It's 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 just an idea at this point. Cool. But I've wanted to do it basically since I wanted to write something. Actually, right. um, I was very um, very inspired by uh, some of the marketing that the Blair Witch Project did. Right. Um, they had a whole book about these characters, and like the marketing in that, and then movies like Cloverfield and. Um, there's there's a few uh, to varying success. Some some movies uh, did incomplete marketing. That, right. Uh, I can't think of the name of the film, The Devil Inside. I think where the marketing actually killed it on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm. People got mad that they had to search for it. <laughs> but to me, as long as the audience is in on it, I kind of think that's neat. But I don't want to make it too hard, so I'm going right. to collate everything and put it all in one format. Uh, there probably will still be a written version, which right. I will eventually make public. Uh, but the project right now is called Two Nights Day. Uh, Victor Devon presents Two Nights Day stories from the Gilman, and some of the stories will take before take place before the Gilman. But they're basically what do all these people have in common? Interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, Thank you. I look forward to that. Thank uh, you. Keep an eye out for that this summer, maybe. Should no, absolutely. Yeah. If it's not by if it's not by this summer, then I have. Then something has happened. Okay. Because uh, I, that is the next thing. Well, we will, we currently run ads for We Burlesque on this show, and I will be happy to run those ads Thank as well. You. Thank you. Um, a special shout out to the to Micah Edwards who did the uh, the Gilman ad that you hear at the end of. It's a really we cool Burlesque. ad. Yeah. The first time I heard it, I was like, ooh, something we, different. We wrote that, and we didn't know honestly how it was going to deliver, and he delivered it very stiffly, and it was like something's wrong. And then he was like, what if I did like an Eddie Cantor voice? And I was like. That's it. That's it. That's it, dude. Why the hell didn't we think of that three ta- like 40 takes ago? <laughs> but, yeah. Um, Victor Devon, thank you for being on my show. Oh, my pleasure. I always love having you on. I feel like we could talk all night, but uh, uh, we have other things to do. Oh, oh, no. I have to come up with something else to do now? <laughs> <laughs> um, but but thank you for being on the show. Yeah. Um, I would, I, I, I'm not sure when this is going up, so just go to We Burlesque. Go see it at Rock yeah. Bar the um, first and third Wednesday of every month. Yeah. Uh, Victor Devon with a K. Uh, Victor, V-I-K-T-O-R-D-E-V-O-N-N-E on everything. On everything. Uh, Check out We Burlesque the Podcast. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty easy to find, frankly. Google so. them, guys. Check them out. Um, you know the deal. I would love for you to sign us off, but please look up Victor Devon everywhere. He'll be back probably in another two years, if not sooner. Yes, that's the, that's always the plan. That's always the plan. <laughs> uh, to your plan. But uh, Victor, please sign us off, and thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much. Uh, well, music is life. Life is good. That's it for this episode of Crash Chords Autographs. Our theme music is by Michael Kill. Our logo was designed by Case Aiken and Joey Amon. 
If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and Facebook. You'll help us reach more listeners. Questions, comments, or guest recommendations? Email matt.storm at crashchords.com or hit us up on Twitter at CrashchordsWeb. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Victor Devon, and I am the host of We Burlesque, the podcast. Every Monday, I talk to fabulous denizens of nightlife, including burlesque performers, both seasoned and new to the form, drag performers, performance artists, DJs, and artists who make up their respective scenes. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please visit weburlesque.com to check out episode recaps and see all the formats available. And remember that music is life. Life is good. <laughs> <laughs>